Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. Before uh, we, we read the scripture passage, I want to set up what we're going to read together because it will make more sense if I have a little bit of time to intro uh, the passage that we're going to look at for our sermon this morning. If you've been with us over the course of the spring now, uh, headed towards the summer, you know that we are in the middle of a series where we're walking through the entire Old Testament, trying to tell the story that the Old Testament tells of the people of Israel. It's a, it's a story about God and God's mission and the people that God has for his mission. That really is how we've summed that up over and over again. And this morning we come uh, to a very sad part of the story. And so the text that we would be looking at uh, in, in the line of text we've been looking at is in 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings 8 through 10, we saw over the last two weeks that Israel really experienced its golden age. That Solomon and the temple and all of the marvelous things that God had done from them. But, but what happens in the story is they go from the pinnacle of the golden age to the darkest moment in their history in the matter of a few short years. And if you start in your Bible, this is one way of doing this, with the death of Joshua, way back in Judges chapter 2, it took 78 chapters in the Bible to get to the high point. It takes two chapters for them to lose it. And it's a reminder that sin is real, that sin is the weeds in my yard and grace is the flowers. Do nothing in Florida and you get which? Weeds. They grow naturally, they grow quickly, but if you want flowers, you have to work hard, you have to fight for it, you have to water, you have to fertilize, you have to weed, you can't, don't you dare go on vacation because when you come back, who knows what's going to have happened. And that's a great analogy for all of life, but especially for relationships, which is the subject that we're looking at this morning. In relationships, do nothing, and you get weeds, and the weeds might be hurt feelings, or conflict, or just cold indifference to the people in your life, and distance from them. But if you want healthy, vibrant, whole relationships, you have to fight. You have to be proactive. You have to water. You have to fertilize. You, you have to confront and cry and forgive and then do it all over again, again and again and again. And the easiest place, this is my contention this morning, the easiest place for most of us to see the effects of sin in the fall are in our relationships. The way they can seem to be flourishing one minute and then completely ruin the next. And the event in the story found in 1 in first, first Kings 12 and also in Chronicles 10 goes something like this. As soon as Solomon died, the kingdom that was united under Solomon's rule, remember Solomon, the son of David, the great king, as soon as Solomon dies, the kingdom's thrown into turmoil. Uh, there had been a rebellion just years before that, led by a man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was ultimately defeated and sent into exile in Egypt. That's in 1 Kings 11.40. Until Solomon's death, but just like all the stories that you know, as soon as the king dies, he returns, he rallies the people against Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and plunges Israel into civil war. And from that time on, from that moment in their history on, the nation of Israel will be divided between Israel, which consists of the ten tribes in the northern part of the country, united under Jeroboam, and Judah, which is the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin in the south, united under Rehoboam. So the capital city of Israel becomes Samaria. The capital city of Judah is Jerusalem, David's city. And I want you to see, I'll give you all that information because it's impossible to read the Bible right unless you understand and know the history. So for the rest of the book of Kings, if you were to read, you have to pay attention to the phrase, so-and-so the king of Israel, right, king of the north, so-and-so king of Judah, 
king in the south, because they're not the same thing. And from this time on, uh, God's people have been split in two. There's this great division that happens. And I think it's obviously easy for us to apply this to our lives because we, fill, we live in a world filled with broken relationships. And the lesson is, sin divides, separates, breaks apart. God's grace and God's salvation unites and brings together. So the good news that I have for you this morning is that God's grace in the gospel to unite and bring us together is more powerful than our sin, which would drive us apart. And that's the very promise that we read in the scriptures that we're going to read together now from the prophets, because the prophets pick up on this event, this reality of Israel, God's beloved people being divided in two, and they say there's going to come a day when God's going to work. He's going to come, he's going to rescue and deliver his people, and part of the work that he's going to do in bringing salvation to them is he's going to take the two parts that have been divided and he's going to bring them together and he's going to once again make them one people. So we read this morning from Isaiah chapter 11 and also from Ezekiel chapter 37. And So if you want to follow along with me, it's in your worship folder printed for you. It'll also be on the screen behind me. You can take a Bible out of the pew in front of you and read uh, from there as well. Isaiah 11 and then on to Ezekiel chapter 37. Uh, Let's read the word of the Lord. From the prophet Isaiah, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah. Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And then from the prophet Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him, and then take another stick And write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them to one another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, why, will you, will you tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph, that is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will join it with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. And my servant David shall be king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their priest and their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. These are wonderful passages. And I want us to see three things, if you would permit me this morning. And so they're they're the three points of the outline that I've given you. Three Three things about this work of salvation that God promises to do. I want you first to look with me at the sadness of broken relationships. And I want to talk about just just why it is that broken relationships carry such profound sadness for us. 
But secondly, I want, you, I want us to, to, in order to understand how it is God's going to help us in this, I want you to see the cause. We have to understand the cause of those broken relationships. And then thirdly, I want to ultimately end with the power to heal broken relationships. So the sadness of broken relationships, the cause of broken relationships in our lives, and the power to heal them. Those are our three points this morning. So let me first paint with broad, a broad brush. I'm, we're, you know, I've told you we're trying to move into our house, and I've learned first thing you've got to do if you're trying to paint, you paint with the broad brush first, right? Then you go back and you kind of do it with the small cut-in brush. So let me go with the broad brush first, and then I'll come back and cut in with more detail. Okay, so let's look at this first point. Uh, shalom and unity. The, the, how, why is it that there's so much sadness caused by broken relationships? And, and, and the reason why broken relationships carry so much sadness and, and by the way, I'm not going to try to prove this to you. I'm just going to assume that you, that you agree with me, that it's enough that, that your experience would, would, would cause you to agree with what, what I'm, I'm arguing here. And the short answer is for, for the reason why there's so much sadness is that, as I've said, in our relationships, our relationships are the place that we most powerfully feel the effects of the fall. And so we're back to the story we've been trying to tell, right? We've been telling a story. Of creation, fall, and redemption. Creation, the the Christian doctrine of the Trinity means that relationship is the heart of all reality. God is three. He's one in three persons. He is a community of persons. And so that we have been made in the image of the triune God who is a community of persons means that we have been made for relationships that mirror the relationship between the persons of the Godhead. That was the experience of the first man and the first woman in the garden before the fall. They were, we're told in Genesis 2, Naked and unashamed. That is, uh, they were completely known and completely loved by one another. They were naked. They were, there was no pretense, no posturing, no manipulation, no hiding. They were completely known to one another. Their, their relationship was characterized by honesty and transparency. Nothing hidden from one another. They were completely known. But at the same time, they were completely loved. They were naked, but there was no shame. Their relationship was characterized by Mutual delight in one another and affection and love and acceptance of one another. And what we're told is that all of that changed in the fall. When they sinned, they were immediately filled with a sense of dread and guilt and condemnation and no longer love and acceptance. And because they felt condemned, what we're told in that passage in Genesis 3 is, is that they try to cover their nakedness. And to do that, they turn on each other. That's what happens in the story. They turn on each other to try to, to, try to feel better about themselves, to try to cover themselves from their nakedness. They, they turn on each other. And, and that story explains why all of our relationships go the way they do. That even in the best of relationships, we wouldn't say that we are completely known and completely loved. Even in the best relationships at times, dishonesty and posturing or just simple miscommunication happen. I mean, we're not completely known to one another. And what happens is it leads to emotional distance. It leads to impatience or frustration, whatever it might be, all of which are failures to love. And the reason that the Bible gives for why our experience is like this is is we're not whole. We're all deeply insecure and have to dwell and live with these, these inner deep, Feelings of condemnation. And the way we cope with our insecurity is the same way they coped with theirs at the beginning in Genesis. We, we turn on each other. We cope with our fear and our insecurity by turning on each other. And there's a number of, way we do that, number of ways we do this. And all of them destroy relationships. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. 
So there's a connection, this is what I want you to see, between shalom and relational wholeness, which is why broken relationships are so painful. They peel off the scab on the wound left by the fall. They confront us with the fact that the world is not right, that we're not right. That we were made to be completely known and to be completely loved, and anything less than that leaves us with a hole in our soul. And that's why there's so much disappointment and frustration in relationships, and particularly, see, even in the church, because we have even higher standards for the church. And because we have such high hopes, and then even there we don't find the belonging we crave, and we never will, because, it's been, because the reality of our lives, and this is the bad news part of, this, of the sermon, the reality of our lives is it's been lost to us, and we can't get it back. Loneliness, divorce, failed friendships, whatever it might be, are part of life in a broken world. But remember the story we've been trying to tell. The world is no longer what it once was, that is true, but don't forget that the world is not yet what it will one day be. Both Isaiah 11 and Ezekiel 37 are passages about what life will one day be under the reign and rule of Jesus, Messiah. They are prophecies of restoration. And part of restoration is the healing of broken relationships. So look at what Isaiah 11 says. In verses 13 and 14, Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they will swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines, and together, now they're together, they shall plunder the people of the east. Isaiah says that the tribes of Israel will be reunited under Messiah's leadership against their common enemies. And that's, that's what went wrong in Genesis 3, is they had a common enemy. It was a serpent in the garden trying to deceive them, and yet instead of being united in their, in their frontal assault on the common enemy, they turned on each other and began to treat one another as the enemy. But the language here is that when God comes to redeem his people, ultimately at the end of the ages, he will bring us together in such a way that together we will go against our common enemies and we'll, and we'll seek to, to conquer them. And in some ways, we celebrate and get to experience that in small measure even now. Now, the language of Ezekiel 37, or Ezekiel 37 excuse me, is even more vivid. And I wish we had time to look at the entire chapter. It's really, it's really great. In the verses that lead up to the verses that I printed here for you, the prophet sees a valley of dry bones. And the, the, the dry bones that are in the valley represent the nation of Israel uh, there's no life in them. They've, they've just dried up and became useless. And then all of a sudden, as the prophet sees this valley of dry bones, we're told there's a rattling and a rushing of a wind, and the bones begin to come together, and sinew and flesh begin to form around them. And then the Lord breathes on them, and as he breathes on them, they come to life, and we're told it's an exceedingly great army. And it's a picture of resurrection. It's, it's imagery that describes God's work. In response to the fall, that he is determined to make all things new. That he is going to bring his shalom to the earth. And part of the experience of that shalom, which is ours under his reign and rule, is the healing of our relationships to make us one. To bring us together. To make us one. And the prophet has two sticks, he says. One representing Judah, the other representing Ephraim, which... Ephraim was the dominant tribe in Israel, so it's Judah and Israel. And he is told to join them together so that the two sticks become one stick. And it is a parable of the work of God's Spirit to make his people, verse 23, one in his hand. 
The New Testament scriptures, the equivalent of what the prophets are describing here is the church who we're told is a reconciled people. In Ephesians chapter 2, which Jonathan read for us earlier, we're told Jesus Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and has created one new man in the place of the two. And that language echoes Isaiah 11. It echoes Ezekiel chapter 37. In other words, the gospel of Jesus kills off our hostility toward one another, and the result is that the church is a community of peace and reconciliation. That's the vision of what God would ultimately do, that we, we are, this body of people in this room, gathered, assembled here in God's presence, that we are the beginnings of the fulfillment of everything God has to say in Isaiah chapter 11 and Ezekiel 37. Isn't that amazing? Well, it is to me anyway. It may not be to you. I mean, I that got no enthusiastic response whatsoever. So let me just tell you, it, I'll declare it. It is amazing. And hope that you can believe into that statement with me. Right? It is an absolutely amazing thing. But let me apply it in a couple ways before we move on to the, to the next point. Uh, I want, don't forget, don't forget that the community, the church is a community of sinners. We, we still are, despite our being redeemed. We are a community of sinners. And so if you're new to the church or if, it, you know, if your experience with the church has been those people, you know, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, please, when you find Christians to be sinners, don't call them hypocrites. Because a hypocrite is a person who, se- who is something they say they aren't. But we want to be, we are sinners. So if you find us to be sinners, that doesn't make us hypocrites. It actually makes us what we've already said we are. The church is, the church is a community of sinners. So when, so when it's hard, when it's hard in the church, when it's hard in your life, when, when relationships are hard, it doesn't mean it's not working. It means you're beginning to, it's the hard, the hard that it's hard means actually that you're beginning to experience true community. And when you run and run away because you feel scared or because you've been hurt, can I be your, oh, listen, that moment of running, wanting to run away because there's so much panic or fear, that moment is the doorway that will take you from pseudo-community to true community. If you'll stay. And if you'll go through the door. But don't forget the church is a community of sinners. But also, secondly, don't forget the church is also a redeemed community. And so we have to be committed to unity. Paul says to the church, walk with humility. Ephesians 4, walk with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with each other in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and on and on and on he goes. Broken relationships are a part of sin in the fall, and that's why they carry such profound sadness. So you look at our society and you see this everywhere, but when people look at the church, they should see the life of heaven already here on display in the way we love and forgive and fight for a relationship with one another. That's the first point. But you see, in order to do this, we have to understand why good relationships are so hard. We have to understand the reasons. If there's a sadness, we have to understand the cause and the reasons for broken relationships too. And so that's our second point. So come with me uh, back into Ephesians chapter 2 for just a minute. And in Ephesians 2, Paul says there's hostility. That's the problem. There's a latent hostility in all of our relationships that creates, verse 14, a wall of separation. But where's that hostility come from? See, that's what, how do we recognize it when it begins to surface? Where's the hostility come from? And what are the signs of it when it begins to kind of pop up in our lives? Those are, those are the things I want to talk about uh, in, the, in this second part of our sermon. Where does, where does the hostility come from? 
And in the, in the original story of how Judah and Israel were broken in two, it was the selfish ambition of two men. You had Jeroboam and you had Rehoboam, both of whom wanted to be king, both of whom were intolerant of the other's claims. And so were, it was pride. It was human selfish ambition and vain conceit and pride that led to this split, that led to all the devastation. And C.S. Lewis is so brilliantly noted uh, that pride, by definition, is competitive. He writes in uh, Mere Christianity, he says, Each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure. Listen to this phrase. It's the comparison that makes you proud. C.S. Lewis says, the pleasure of being above the rest. And it's that last phrase that is the Bible's explanation of where the hostility towards one another comes from. It is in every single one of us a desire and a pleasure of being above the rest. And if you want a great illustration, I don't know of a better one than what we read this past week in our community Bible reading, where you have at the, the high hole, it, it, it astounds me every time I read in, in Luke's gospel, you have this high holy moment. Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples. He has, just, he has just celebrated communion with them. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. You would think they would be awed and mar- they would be marveling. They would be wondering. And yet we're told uh, that, that immediately, as soon as they finish, Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer because it's what loving you demands. This is my body for you. This is my blood for you. And we're told immediately a, a, a fight broke out among the disciples as to who was the greatest. What? Are those guys idiots? What? What is that? And it's a picture. It's a picture. We're told they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to betray him, as he was said. And then a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded the greatest. And it's a picture of our hearts. It exposes a very unhealthy dynamic in their group that is true of most groups. And it's the desire to be above the rest, to know where they rank and where everybody else ranks in relationship to them. And what's happened is, as you can see it, if you read the Gospels, you can see it happen to them over the time of Jesus' ministry. It begins to ruin their friendship. They're not friends. They're not acting as friends. They're acting as rivals. They're not teammates. They're not acting as if they're teammates. They're acting as if they're opponents. And that's what happens. That's what pride does. Pride gets into a community and it turns the community into a competition. And Isaiah really exposes this in Isaiah 11 when he says that the problem is that Ephraim is jealous. Do you see that? Ephraim is jealous of Judah, and Judah is harassing Ephraim, verse 13. So when there's an infestation of pride in a group, it creates two different pathologies, two different relationship pathologies. On the one hand, it creates an inferiority complex among some in the group, and it's really represented by the word jealous here. Israel is jealous of Judah. They are rivals. See, they're no longer one. They're now rivals. They're competitors, and Israel's losing. Judah's winning. And there's jealousy there because they have an inferiority complex that's driving them. But on the other hand, there's the infestation of pride that creates a superiority complex among others in the group. And, and that's the word harass, which means to oppress or to assert your dominance over another person. Judah 
is harassing Israel. They are rivals. Judah is winning. Israel's losing. And if you're full of pride and you're winning, then how do you treat people who aren't winning? And what's important to understand is that both of the, the person with the superiority complex and the person with the inferiority complex, they're both proud. They're both self-centered. They're both basing their sense of self on where they rank in the group. And for the one, it leads to envy. Envy in everybody else who they think is ahead of them. And for the other, it, it leads to snubbing everybody who they consider below them. And so what pride does, and this is really gross. I mean, it really is gross, but you can see it all the time. Pride causes you to enter every group. You enter the relationship, you enter the marriage, you enter the friendship, whatever it might be, either from a posture of superiority or inferiority, and both create hostility. And the hostility is then perpetuated by the way the group lives life together. So those with an inferiority complex become desperate to climb up to the top of the standings. And those with the superiority complex are desperate to stay there. And so what we do, the way we play the game and the way we seek to win is we turn on one another. We boast. And boasting is strategically representing ourselves in a certain way to gain the admiration and the envy of others. And when that doesn't work, we criticize And criticism is a way of knocking other people down because, of course, if they get knocked down, what happens to me? Are you all alive? You out there? Hello? You with me? Come on. Right? If I get knocked down, if they get knocked down, I I climb. I go up. When somebody else criticizes me, of course, instead of repenting uh, and listening, then I defend myself, which is just another way. It's a way of regaining control. I've lost control. And the other person's criticism, I feel myself sliding down in the rankings, and so I go on the offensive to stop the slide. And this is the kind of dynamics you see in a, in a community where, where there's hostility, boasting and criticism and nitpicking. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in his letter to Galatians. This is absolutely, this is absolutely frightening. He says we're conceited. That word means we're empty on the inside and emotionally needy. We're naked. We're insecure. And so what we do is we turn on one another. In his words, he says, we bite and devour one another. In other words, we are so hungry for love and acceptance that we feed on one another for it. Sin makes us parasites to the community. Isn't that gross? And really what's behind it all is a sense of works righteousness. What's undergirding all of it is this idea of works righteousness. I've got I've to do good. I've got I've to follow the rules. I've, whatever, whatever it is, I've got, I've, I've got to perform well. Because if I perform well, those who perform well are high up on the rankings. And those who perform poorly are way down on the rankings. And all of it is undergirded by this sense of works righteousness. And, and if I can make the only application I want to make to, mother, to mothers this morning is just this. Mothers, on Mother's Day... It is a temptation, even on a day like this, uh, to do this. And so, moms, I'm praying for you, you, for you today, and here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that God would keep you from superiority or inferiority complexes which would ruin the day for you. Because for a lot of you, this is the day more than any other, this day. More than any other, which, powerful, which powerfully is powerfully working to inform your sense of self because being a mom makes up most of your life, which also means your performance as a mom can become your righteousness. And nobody's going to tell you this today because we're, not, we're supposed to only say nice things to moms. So I'll be the only one to say it. But moms, don't forget today that you're sinners. Which means 
which means if you haven't yet, you're eventually going to get it wrong. You're going to lose it with your kids. You're going to forget to put their homework in their book bag. Listen, that's okay. Thank you. Got an amen. How about it? Thank you, Erica. So here, listen, be careful. Don't stop to evaluate what a great mom you are or what a terrible mom you are today. Don't get on Facebook and look and see what all the other families did for their moms and compare it to how well your husband did or how poorly he did in executing, you know, what your children are going to do for you. Listen, listen, just enjoy your kids. So thirdly, lastly, the third thing we want to see then is power. Where does the power come from? There's power within the church, and that's important, within the church. There's power to heal broken relationships. Because you see, if there's a connection between shalom and relationships, in other words, if salvation in the Bible refers to the restoration of shalom and our lives and our world being healed from the curse of sin, then practically to be saved means that God is healing you relationally. And the church is the church being a redeemed community of people means that we, even now, even in the way we live together now, we begin to experience his grace and power to put others ahead of ourselves. And when sin gets the best of us, to forgive one another and work towards reconciliation and healing. But where does the power come from? And it's right here, both in Isaiah 11 and Ezekiel 37. So let's look a little more closely at the text again. In Ezekiel 37, picking up in verse 23, God says, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph, Israel, and join it to the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. And look here, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. Now remember, what what caused the division in the first place? Israel followed Jeroboam. Judah followed Rehoboam. They each had their own king. So the prophet says that the healing of the division will happen when the one king, the true son of David, shows up and gathers both Israel and Judah under his throne. And if you've been here for the past few months, this should all be starting to come together for you now. Isaiah says it more descriptively. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And who is Jesse? Whose father was Jesse? David. He's saying there's a, da- there's a David coming. There's a true and better David. There's a son of David, a Messiah coming. And when he comes, look at verse 12, he will raise a signal, a banner for the nations, and will gather Israel and Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, what's that? And the image here is that a king going to war. And the signal or the banner was the flag that contained the king's crest. So every nobleman would have uh, their own crest and banner to represent their house. And if they went to battle against an enemy, they would raise uh, the banner and ride through the village and call the villagers who served them out to battle. But when the king raised his banner, he was calling his noblemen all throughout the kingdom to war. And all the various houses of the kingdom would put away their own crest and would fly the king's banner instead, or at the very least, they would fly the king's banner and then underneath it, they would put their own. And it was a way of showing that, that they served the king's interests ahead of their own. They were going to war in his name. And often this meant that a nobleman who might have a beef against another nobleman would have to lay aside that beef. And in that, opponents would once again become teammates. Rivals would fight side by side against a common enemy for the sake of the king and the kingdom. And there would be unity and peace. And that's the image. It is the subduing work of the king that is the basis of our relational wholeness. Our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true 
son of David, Messiah, has called us out to war against the common enemy. And for his sake and for the sake of his kingdom, we lay down our arms against one another. And that's the way it works in the church. Not necessarily outside of the church, but in the church. The king subdues our hostility towards one another by uniting us under a common king and a common mission that demands our loyalty and love, not only towards the king, but also towards one another. Teacher Bonhoeffer in his little book, Life Together, has a remarkable sentence. He says, as Christians, we come to one another only through Jesus Christ. My faith in him means I'm united to him by faith. Your faith in him means you're united to him by faith. That means that we are united to one another only through him. So what Bonhoeffer says is, is in order to get to you, I have to first go through him. So suppose there's a conflict between you and I, or you know, bet- between me and a friend, let's say, who is also a Christian. If I'm mad at him, what, what Bonhoeffer says is I don't get to just go to him. I've first got to go to Jesus and deal with Jesus before I can go to him and deal with him. And that's what Bonhoeffer meant, and that changes everything. So let me just explain how, really quickly. Every other king subdues through force, but not Jesus. And when the trumpet sounded and, and the war banner was raised, the citizens of the kingdom would gather to fight. But what would be their motivation? I mean, do you remember the scene in, in, um, in Braveheart at the, at the first major battle sequence? William Wallace shows up and the army's there, but they're grumbling. They're saying things like, we don't want to fight for these guys. Why should we risk our lives for them? They're not good to us anyway. And so... Why are they there? Why are they there if they feel that way? And, and the answer is it's probably fear. They know that the Lord that they serve can punish them if they don't show up when they're called. Most kings subdue only through force, but force motivates people to obedience through fear. And the problem is that the motivation of fear is never wholehearted. It's always begrudging or measure. There's always something held back. It's coercion rather than submission. But the king we serve... The Lord Jesus does not subdue through force, but through gospel. He subdues through love. Isaiah says he will raise a banner. And I said before, the banner would have had the emblem of the family or the family crest of the king on it. The emblem or the crest would have carried something, uh, an, an enormous significance. It would have said something about the house that the person belonged to or represented. If, so if you've read or watched Game of Thrones, and by the way, if you have, you probably shouldn't admit it in church, nevertheless... But I guess that counts as an admission, so I'm in trouble this morning. Right, you know that the house Lannister is represented by the lion, and the house Stark by the wolf, and the house Baratheon by the stag, each of which carries unique significance. The banner tells you something about the people that it signifies. And in Song of Solomon's chapter 2, verse 4, we're told, He brought me to his banqueting table, and his banner over me, is what? Can you finish it? Love. You know what that means? It means that what characterizes our king, what subdues our hearts to him, it's not force, it's love. So within the church, within the church, in this community of people, within the church, for me to have to go through him to get to you, here's what this means. It means I'm mad at you about something. You've offended me or you've hurt me. What? whatever the case may be. But before I can go to you about that, I've got to first go to him. And when I go to him, I, <laughs> what happens when I go to him is I have to be reminded, oh yeah, I've offended him. I've hurt him in my sin. I've betrayed him. And how has he responded? Well, he's loved me. Jesus is not the kind of king who demands that his subjects give their lives in his service. No, he's the kind of king who gives his life to serve and love his people. So if he has loved me like that, if he was obedient all the way to death, on a cross because it was the only way to love and care for me, then by the time I get 
through him to you, what happens is, is in light of all that the gospel says is true of his love for me, I go through him to you, and by the time I get to you, my heart has been drained of all of its anger (laughs) and all of its impatience and all of its criticism and all of its boasting. Jesus has forgiven me so much. How can I not forgive you? Jesus has been patient with you. So how can you not be patient with me? Jesus is compassionate and toward, toward us and kind toward all of us in our sins. So how can we not be compassionate and kind towards one another as we meet one another in the places where our sin just is exposed? His banner over us is love. His banner over me is love. So my banner over you is love. His banner over you is love, and so your banner over me is love. And let me just, let me finish with this, because we need to come to a close. According to Paul, Jesus Christ has destroyed the whole works righteousness system that I talked about earlier. He has broken down Ephesians 2, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the commandments. And that, that, that means this, that we are not saved through the commandments. We are not saved by our performance. We are saved by grace, which means in the church there can be no superiority or no inferiority complexes because grace is the great leveler. We are all in the same position. We are all ranked the same. We are all, all, every one of us guilty and condemned. We are all, all, every one of us loved and accepted on the basis of his grace alone which means Jesus knows us all the way to the bottom of our dark, sinful hearts. He knows us completely. He loves us completely. And that is the gospel truth that is the center of our life together. And if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, then it is the power to heal broken relationships. It is the power to make us a community of love so that our city would know by the way we love one another that we are indeed his disciples. And that's the mission that he's called us to. And so let's pray that he would help us. Lord Jesus. Work in our hearts today by your grace. That where there is division and disunity or where there's just um, distance or a root of bitterness that has not been dealt with, where, where we uh, fail to, to pursue the bonds of peace as you've described for us, where we have failed to exhibit to one another and to the city that you called us to that we are one body, that there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, that we have much more in common than we do uh, different from one another, where we have failed and struggled because of our sin, would you forgive us? Would you heal our hearts so that we could be a people who would love one another with such power and such purity, such enduring, patient grace towards one another, that it would heal the brokenness of every single one of us, the insecurity and the fear of every single one of us in this room to be a part of a community that loves and is committed to one another like that, but that would also ring out from this place into the city you've called us to, And draw men to yourself that in our love for one another, they may see the great love that you have for them. Lord Jesus, that's our hope and our prayer. Give us the spirit, please, in great measure that he would work in our hearts in this way that we might bear fruit that would glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Lord Jesus Christ has gathered us to this place to call us to war. But the war he calls us to is not a war where we take up arms. It's a war where we wage peace. And love, and and where we are ministers of reconciliation. And so that's the work he sends us to do. He sends us to do the hard work, both toward one another and towards the city that he's called us to, of love and forgiveness and, and reconciliation and peace. And so as you go to do that hard work, 
Remember, go beholding him. Go first to him. And that's what this benediction is. It's, it's his standing at the front end of the work he calls you to, saying, as you go, you can be confident that I will be working for you, that I'm for you, that all of my grace and mercy are yours in Christ Jesus, that all the resources of my kingdom are at your disposal. And so receive the promise of his protection and guidance and care and provision, and then go uh, and fight uh, to be a people that display his grace and mercy to a watching world. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Go and wage peace.